This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go! 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 Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. So if you walk into a, a Chinese uh, roasted duck restaurant, you will not smell it like roasted steak because the, the amino acid in the duck skin is different from that in the beef. So that's how it would affect the flavor profile, but then the amount would affect the flavor stability, for example. This week on the show, our final live episode from the 2019 Craft Brewers Conference in Denver. This episode is packed with pearls of wisdom from the Brain Trust at RAR Malting Company. All right, so we're here at the Craft Brewers Conference in Denver uh, with Dr. Yin and Dr. Patty, the hydrogenator Aaron, is that right? Yes. Okay. Do you want to explain that at all or no? Yes. The hydrogenator <laughs> is my alter ego. So it's, it's my version of being a beer superhero. Perfect. And she did it. And she did it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. So uh, for those of you who have no idea what's going on, there was an arm wrestling contest uh, here at the CBC last night, so, which Patty participated in. Um, okay, well, anyway, uh, we're here. You guys are about to give a presentation on beer flavor stability, uh, especially as it relates to malt. We're going to give listeners some practical advice for best practices to improve flavor stability. But first, let's give an overview of the different beer staling mechanisms that are relevant here. Uh, sure. There are quite a few ways that beer um, can begin to stale, starting from raw material quality all the way through um, malting practice. Um, we could even extend that into um, hot processing as well if you want to go that avenue. Um, optimization throughout the malt house as well as how we produce the beer. Um, different uh, parameters that we can adjust throughout the brewing process and finishing process. So. We can start with raw materials and go all the way through production, um, whether it's on the raw material side or the final product side. Um, of the major staling mechanisms, most of them relate to oxidation, so presence of oxygen. However, even in the absence of oxygen, we can have some staling mechanisms occurring due to the presence of either free radicals or um, specific compounds or molecules that will just either 
degrade over time into other molecules or change shape in, into other molecules over time or follow pathways that are um, accelerated through the presence of other free radicals. Okay, so let's look at a, a, f a few examples of that. Let's dig a little bit deep into, you know, lipo lipoxygenase and uh, the, the whole trans-2 known and all pathway. Uh, we won't go too deep, but let's just talk about that on a high level. Yes, certainly. I think one of the mechanisms is really the production of uh, papery or cardboardy note in the beer, and that is a result of um, lipid degradation and lipid and fatty acid oxidation. And that is catalyzed by an enzyme called the lipooxygenase, uh, particularly uh, one of the isoaminases uh, enzymes like uh, lipooxygenase 1, LOX1, and that is really oxidizing the uh, degraded the, the lipid to fatty acid and all the way to transtunolinol, which is really a very stale compound at very, very low threshold like a 0.15 ppb level in regular beers. Okay, and then heat stress is another um, area that a lot of brewers may not uh, have on their radar. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure. In the brewing process, um, the beer can undergo heat stress, and we measure that there is an index called the thiobarbituric acid index, TBI, um, and basically, it's the production of melanoidins or other compounds that can um, become free radicals or um, just compounds that give a staling note. Um, one index of heat staling is the presence or the increase in furfuraldehyde um, or phenylacetaldehyde as well. So those are two staling compounds that we see increased due to heat stress. Um, they may not impact the flavor so readily as some other compounds, but they can be used to understand whether or not the beer has undergone heat stress in terms of production or post-package stress during aging. All right, very good. And then uh, there's another beer staling mechanism that has to do with uh, amino acids. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. Uh, normally, I think in adjunct beers, uh, that is not a really an issue because you really dilute the fermium nitrogen to quite a large degree. However, in all mode brewing, uh, you would uh, very likely to end up with uh, excess amount of fermium nitrogen in the beer, and those fermium nitrogen materials could be substrate for a uh, reaction called striker degradation. Then they turn those amino acids into stale aldehyde, and those stale aldehyde can have very low threshold and can really generate a series of off notes like a soy saucy note, um, very malty note, or sometimes even meaty, breath, uh, meaty brothy notes. All those type of off flavors could be due to the reaction from excess amount of fermium nitrogen uh, that yeast could not use up in fermentation. What can, the, um, what can that amino acid profile of a given barley tell us brewers? So the free amino acid, the free amino nitrogen rather in terms of amino acids, so broken down into just its amino acids, um, can tell you the available amino acids for the yeast. So yeast require a certain um, 
lower level of amino acids to function and to reproduce and also um, go through their cellular processes and make ethanol and all of that. When you have the excess of certain amino acids, the yeast will either uptake them or not uptake them. It's called the ordered uptake issue. So there are some amino acids that yeast will uptake, but not until much later in the fermentation. Um, there are some that they uptake very readily because they need them to reproduce. Proline, for example, is not an, an amino acid that yeast can assimilate, so they don't uptake it at all. So if we look at the free amino nitrogen profiles of various barley varieties or malts, malt types, then we can understand what's available for the yeast in terms of free amino um, acids and what could potentially be left over in terms of um, extra, rather, leftover amino acids that could become staling compounds during aging. All right, let's get into some of the, the beer staling uh, preventative measures that you guys um, are planning to give brewers as some, some practical advice, and especially you know during malt, start off with, with those that are during malt handling and milling. So uh, lipoxygenase activity actually decreases with storage. Why is that? Yeah, that is a mechanism people have not studied a lot, but definitely from studies in Europe or North America, people find that the apparent LOX1 level uh, goes down as the mold storage time goes up. And normally it occurs in the first two to three weeks to large degree, then the deduction is relatively low. So it could be due to some um, maybe extractability or could be due to the enzyme rearrangement, etc. But uh, nobody has really published a lot on that. That's certainly an area we can study more, therefore we can handle that properly. Is, that, is it a significant uh, difference? I mean, is it the kind of thing where a brewer needs to really make sure, hey, I'm not using malt that is only a week old? Yes, normally you see quite significant amount of reduction, maybe up to 30, 50% reduction. Um, but we, we do not know whether that enzyme, while in the malt, uh, react, catalyze the reaction or not. Uh, because there's also another method called uh, uh, um, potential, and there's a possibility the enzyme may have reacted with some of the substrate there and it just lost its activity. So it's a whole complex of studies we need to work on yet to understand that better. Okay, what else matters during malt handling and milling? Uh, I, th I think that during the milling particularly, uh, you'll be talking about several issues. One is that uh, a lot of the LOX1 activities is in the germ or the embryo part. And therefore, when you mill it, you try not to break those tissues into very, very fine particles because then the enzyme could be easily extracted. And then in some other cases, uh, you may have the option using wet milling, for example. Therefore, the temperature setting would be very critical. The LOX1 enzyme is active before, uh, below 50C or 55C. So some people would simply raise the temperature to 60C or above um, when they do the striking. Therefore, you don't give the LOX1 enzyme chance to, to work on the fatty acid. Therefore, you prevent that step to happen and you generate less substrate for transtenolinol later on. 
and of course um, getting the uh, away from exposure to oxygen, like using some other uh, like nitrogen or CO2 blanketing also, that might also help as well. Okay, so it sounds like a coarse grind, if you, if you don't have wet milling, a coarse grind is your friend in this situation, right? Yeah, if, if that's its only concern, yes. Okay, and how about, um, let's, how about, let's hear some more about mashing, and what are some of the other you know, best practice defenses against beer staling in regards to mashing? Uh, I think it's very similar, but in this case, it will not be just on logs one. Uh, yes, if you are mashing at a relatively gentle temperature, like around 50 C or so, you would allow the LOX1 enzyme to react with fatty acid and produce a lot of uh, substrates. Um, however, if you raise the temperature over to 60 or above, um, that's C, and then you, you would certainly help to eliminate that. On the other hand, later on, we may touch a little bit more on the free amino nitrogen level as well, because the typical proteolysis, which is also at low temperature normally, 40C or 45C or below, you also generate more free amino nitrogen. That would be the substrate for the striker degradation aldehyde formation later on. Um, so, and then the pH as well, how they favor the enzymes. So there's a, a balance of action. You can control that. Uh, however, you still have to want to make sure you degrade the beta-glucans if that is an issue. Uh, so the brewers and the molsters need to work together to choose the optimal uh, mashing regime there. Uh, I, I think it's, it's critical the brewers look at everything all together, including, for example, do I have enough free amino nitrogen, particularly if I use uh, adjunct? Do I have enough um, beta-glucan degradation? Should I provide beta-gluconase, uh, the optimum condition to react? Or maybe I just look after this um, more like stopping the reaction of LOX1 and those enzymes. So the brewer will have to look into that. One is temperature optimal, the other is pH optimal. And, and then choose the best way they think suitable for their processes and product quality. And of course, like you said before, keeping oxygen out of the process as much as possible. So um, anything we can do to minimize, you know, uh, s splashing or entraining air in the mash as well, right? Yeah, that's, that's always the case from the hot side to the cold side. Um, so, uh, yes, how you would uh, pump your mash into the vessel, for example, whether, like, whether you drop it from the top or pump it from the bottom of the vessel, those, those things are probably already factors the brewers are well considering that already. And let's move on into laudering. Is there anything else um, to add there that, that, that's new? On the laudering, uh, of course, particularly at the high temperature range, you are already starting the thermal load build up. And also, you probably read in some of the journals, they said a lot of the free radicals formed in the molting, particularly in the, um, the kilning or roasting process, um, the free radicals reside more in the husks. So if you do a lot of exhaustive extraction, you would uh, not only build up the thermal load, but also uh, you would extract a lot of those free radicals and possibly some oxidized polyphenols. Those are not really quite uh, antioxidant, they may be more pro-oxidant. Uh, so normally you wanted to control that to a moderate level rather than very exhaustive.
coming up. I think that's why some of those large international old malt brewers, they send their beer all over the world, but the beer seems to be okay because I think that's one of the processes they control relatively well. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... Whitcomb Selinski McAuliffe PC serves all brewers in registering and protecting trademarks, navigating the label approval process, and assisting with OSHA inspections and safety compliance. Please go to WSMLawPC.com for more information. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The 58th Annual District Caribbean Convention joins forces with District Southeast in Miami May 2nd to the 5th. This is going to be a big meeting with lots of great presenters, including folks who've been on this podcast. Joe Hertrick, Andrew Fradiani, John Mallett, Roy Johnson, Dr. John Paul May, Andy Tavikram, and more. District Philly also meets May 3rd at 2SP Brewing. If you're barrel aging, don't miss the May 9th webinar screening for lactobacillus acetotolerans in a brewery setting. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River May 10th and 11th. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets May 16th at the Star Keller in New Ulm. District St. Louis is at Old Bakery Brewery May 16th. The District Southeast Spring Meeting and 4th Annual Crawfish Boil is May 17th and 18th in Tampa. And District Northern Illinois meets at Half Acre Beer May 31st. It's time to start making plans for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. If you can only make it to one conference in 2019, this should be it. We're really mixing things up this time and heading to the Calgary Convention Center to see how Alberta celebrates Halloween. Check out the full count of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Talk about the impact thermal stress has on beer flavor stability and how it should be managed during wet boiling. Yeah, um, I think the wet boiling is is another process. Um, You would uh, do many things. Uh, Of course, you want to evaporate the uh, DMS off notes. Uh, You want to coagulate the proteins. And those are all good. However, at the same time, you are adding a lot of um, heat load thermal load. And those will be, uh, like Patty was mentioning, will be reflected by the high um, TBI index. And if you measure the free radical formation over the boiling process, the free radical level really goes up as you boil it more and more, because you are forming a lot of melanoidin product and you are oxidizing the reductons, etc. You are really um, giving it not really a lot of pro- antioxidant potential, you're oxidizing a lot of the product. So um, if you are not going to concentrate your wort a lot through boiling, or if you have sufficient protein aggregation already, 
and you don't have a lot of DMS issues, uh, long boiling may not be very helpful for flavor stability. What levers do we have to play with in regards to affecting beer flavor stability in the Whirlpool and during wort chilling? Yeah, I think the, the Whirlpool one is very similar to the uh, boiling uh, in the kettle. So every moment you are residing your wort in the Whirlpool, you are adding more chance to build more heat stress. And of course, if there's presence of oxygen, you are really favoring those type of reactions as well. Uh, so if you were measuring the nolanol potential, you'll find that that process is very much related to that. So uh, you may not be able to taste the staleness in the wort or in the fresh beer, but you already build a lot of substrate through that, that process. So that's one important part. The other important part is, yes, in that case, once you achieve your sedimentation, etc., you should cool it as quickly as possible. And then, so when you are exposing the wort to oxygen, you have less oxidation. And of course, the, the tube formation is another one. So in the traditional brewing science, you wanted to accumulate as much tube as possible so that the, um, the precipitate that has probably a lot of fatty acid products, etc., and proteins will settle down and get separated. Um, yeast would love those. However, those would form precursors for oxidation later on in the fermentation and then in the beer storage later on because they, they do carry a lot of fatty material and, and you notice that you don't need a lot to do the So it's not going to utilize it all if you, if you yeah, end up carrying yeah. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, um, there are quite a few flavor stability watchouts during fermentation and maturation, most of which are once again related to oxygen. What advice do you have there? Yeah, on that one, I think it's, it's more the yeast viability and uh, how, it will be, how happy the yeast is in fermentation because that produces a lot of kind of antioxidant or reducing power. And uh, SO2 is a typical example. If you produce a certain amount, not too high, it would help the, keeping the beer fresh. Um, I think those are important and also um, maybe how vigorously you are growing the yeast, how, how much the yeast are multiplying, because yeast has a, a lot of proteins in it, and if they are multiplying, they would also absorb a lot of the free amino nitrogen. Normally, we say as, as a general rule, uh, you don't need more than 15 ppm of, of free amino nitrogen per plate of wood, um, but if you have a good yeast growth there, it would pick up a lot of the residual free amino nitrogen. Therefore, you would reduce the precursors for striker degradation later on. I think that's why some of those large international old malt brewers, they send their beer all over the world, but the beer seem to be okay because I think that's one of the processes they control relatively well from the mashing to the fermentation to the maturation. And, and of course, in there, if you are filtering the beer with diet measures earth, then iron is probably, iron is another factor. Um, you're trying to eliminate the input of iron from that at that stage as well. Um, of course, yeast would absorb a lot of those. Um, that's, again, going back to yeast viability and vitality as well. Yeah, I think one of the, when you get into fermentation, you start to look at the introduction of off flavors or flavor precursors that will lead to um, off flavors during aging of beer. 
Yeast vitality and viability, as Dr. Egan said, are, are fairly important. Another thing is making sure that you get your beer off your yeast in a timely manner because yeast bioaccumulate a lot of different molecules. They will bio, bioaccumulate some amino acids and then they will also bioaccumulate metals. So if you're doing cereal repitching, those kinds of things, you want to really pay attention to how healthy your yeast are. Um, and also remove as much of that yeast as possible because if that gets carried out through the process into bottling, that will generally lead to a lot of off-flavor issues during beer aging. Okay, great. Well, let's talk about bottling and also storage. Uh, what's, what's important there? Keep it cold. <laughs> <laughs> remove oxygen <laughs> and drink it fresh. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. And of course, some people use yeast conditioning uh, that would help as well because the yeast would then continuously uh, producing, reducing substances and consuming oxygen and produce more CO2 and possibly a little bit more SO2 as well. However, then uh, how you handle the yeast later on, it's, it's going to be another challenge. So like Patty said, yes, very important about in, at that stage about the PTO uh, and also the temperature. Uh, those are all very critical. Of course, you can't control how the consumers handle your beer. That's why I think in the earlier on in the process, you're trying to eliminate those uh, precursors or the substrates for those oxidative reactions as much as possible. Talk about another, uh, another important thing there is to minimize the agitation of the packaged product. What's the deal with that? I think the first thing is, is if you do agitation, of course, you have more mixture of, uh, with the oxygen and you would accelerate some of those reactions as well because uh, the biomass exchange, etc. cetera. Uh, and then, of course, uh, if you have float, floating material and they would uh, come up and they would uh, act as surface for reactions as well. And like we said, if there's free fatty acid material, then they would, again, start to react. And I think there are a lot of other um, factors as well that's really related to the biochemistry of the speed of reaction as well. Okay, um, I think you're going to talk about uh, terroir a little bit in your presentation here in a bit. So I was wondering if you could kind of comment on to, you know, to what extent does barley variety, uh, I'm sorry, does barley terroir affect beer flavor stability? Sure. Uh, so... With the latest research in barley terroir, so the regions in which the barley varieties have been grown, what we know is that there are varietal effects, but when we look at um, analytical assessment of LOX, LOX activity, as well as amino acid profiles, some flavor precursors that are in the barley themselves that can be released through the malting process, um, that generally leads towards environmental effects, which can sometimes be greater than varietal effects. And a lot of that research is very new, so we don't fully understand it, but we do see that the environment in which the barley is grown seems to affect the overall flavor potential and flavor stability of the beer that's made with that malted barley. Yeah, I also want to add that um, we, although we don't understand a lot of the mechanism, a good phenomenon is that if we have the same variety growing in different continent, like in Europe and then in North America, we'll see the difference. For example, the total protein content. Um, so those definitely would be factors contributing to the free amino acid level. 
and therefore it would affect flavor stability differently. And, and same thing with, uh, it's, it's like the grapes. Uh, so the year, and then the terroir, and then the variety. So I would say, um, as a summary, um, the, the G by E, um, by M, by S, that will be um, genotype, uh, environment, the molting process, S will be storage, so gyms, uh, if you want to call that way, are all contributing very significantly to this whole endeavor here for better and fresher beer. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence for it. So sometimes we think we are producing a European-style beer, but if we are not managing those parameters well, then the result may not be quite the same as you expected. So we need to take all those into considerations. But on the other hand, though, um, we do need to balance the quality of malt. So we, we, we can use barley that is very low in free amino nitrogen. However, it will not give us the beer. So that's an extreme case, of course. Um, but if we just under-modify the malt to control the free amino nitrogen, then we have beta-glucan issues, etc. So that's why we see also monsters are artists as well. So there's a fine art in processing a more balanced, high-quality malt for the brewers to use in their brewery and produce the, the best quality beer and, and everlasting for the freshness as well. Yeah, and I'd, I'd also like Dr. Yin to comment on one more thing because I don't remember the specifics, but um, we also understand that there is a varietal as well as um, environmental effect on starch sacrification temperatures, which can affect your extract yield. So he knows a little bit more about that than I do. Well, uh, thank you. I think we're still <laughs> studying that. And it's quite fascinating as well. Yeah, if it's um, different varieties or if it's varieties from different geography, um, because maybe the way the starch was synthesized when the barley was maturing in the, in the maturing in the kernels, therefore the structure it put together is a little bit different. For example, uh, the linearity uh, and how many branches you have um, and how long the chain length is for the uh, glucans. And those all affect uh, the energy required to liquefy that starch. So that's really the, what Pat is talking about, about genetization temperature. And sometimes for a brewer who is setting one temperature to do isothermal mashing, um, they may have to refer back to the crop situation and see if that temperature setting is sufficient to bring the starch into liquid, and therefore you can have better conversion later on. You've said that barley amino acid composition is low-hanging fruit in exploring flavor, uniqueness, and stability. Explain that. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the way we say that is because uh, we know, and there's evidence to show that the nitrogen level in different barley are different. And then, not just the total level, but the different amino acid ratios are different. And, and we know some amino acid would have more flavor impact than the others. Um, like in hops, uh, we just found out, or people just reporting, the thiol groups have major flavor impact. In barley, it's very similar. The sulfur-containing amino acids, like cysteine also, they also have very, very strong impact on flavor. Methionine is another one. Uh, if you oxidize that into methionine, that will give you meaty, brothy, uh, potato-like flavor. But uh, if you have 
Um, Sistine, for example, it will give you meaty note. So if you walk into a, a Chinese uh, roasted duck restaurant, you will not smell it like roasted steak because the, the amino acid in the duck skin is different from that in the beef. So that's how it would affect the flavor profile, but then the amount would affect the flavor stability, for example. And one of those amino acids, we talked about proline earlier. It's not assimilable, which means the yeast doesn't uptake proline. So if you have um, proline can tell you a level of modification with your malt, but if you have too much proline available, that leads to off flavors that are very bready and meaty-like as well. Um, and another um, area to look at with amino acids, as Dr. Yin was pointing out, the thiol containing amino acids, they can also lead to um, sulfur off-flavor production in the form of H2S and this oniony kind of onion soup meaty aroma. So they all play a part, and we don't fully understand it, but I believe he's saying we have low-hanging low fruit here, rather, um, because it's one of the few things we can measure and we can bring it back to the variety or the geographic region. Okay, we didn't uh, get into it much, but uh, you've also indicated that roasting operations have an impact on the radical level in malt. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, roasting can do a number of things to your malt. So as you roast the malt, you convert um, the compounds that are available into melanoidins or pigmented molecules. Um, this can sometimes increase the radical content of the malt, so you can see an increase in radical formation. Um, but it also can increase the way that um, iron is stored within the malt, and that storage of iron can impact flavor staling through strecker degradation as well as other pathways. Um, and then the other thing about roasting is that if you heat or roast your malt longer, you'll actually begin to kill off some of the enzymes associated with LOX formation. Okay, very good. Uh, that's actually all of the questions that I have. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you, you would like to that, that we missed? It's a big fat no from Patty over there. <laughs> well, I think we can just uh, summarize it. Uh, as far as mold is concerned, um, there are several major pathways we can look into it. Uh, so one is the type of um, papery cardboardy node coming from beer. That's from the fatty acid degradation oxidation, which is mediated by the LOX level in, in barley and in the mold. That's why some people are pursuing for uh, the low LOX barley to start with. That's much easier. You don't have to control it in the kilning process, trying to inactivate that, because as a result, otherwise, you would inactivate a lot of other enzymes, and then possibly uh, you produce higher color. And the other mechanism is more uh, the multi, the almond, the, the heat load type of, of node is more like furfural formation, which is more related to the thermal load, whether it's in the molting process or later on in the boiling or whirlpool process. Uh, the other one then, it's the, the last one we talked about, is the striker degradation. That's more the amino acid uh, aldehyde, um, which gives you different type of notes like a meaty, brothy, soy saucy notes, etc. Um, that could be very typical for all malt beers. 
And that is another different pathway, is more related to the residual free amino nitrogen in the beer. If the yeast is not able to utilize most of the, um, the amino, amino acids in the wort. So uh, those are areas, but of course there are lots of other areas like exposure to oxygen, mineral content, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but here, uh, as far as mortar concerned, those are the three we'll be talking about, and we're trying to get better understanding of it so that we can help the brewers to produce better lasting and, and fresh, ever fresh beer. <laughs> That was Patty Aaron and Shang Yin here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you want to learn more about fan and flavor impacts, I'll add a link to the show notes that will take you to Patty's 2018 Eastern Technical Conference presentation. Or you can just type fan into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. Did you know that Master Brewers now has a mobile app? TQ articles, podcasts, webinars, Ask the Brewmasters, and more, all in the same place. Search Master Brewers in the App Store to download it now. It's time to start making plans for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. If you can only make it to one conference in 2019, this should be it. We're really mixing things up this time and heading to the Calgary Convention Center to see how Alberta celebrates Halloween. You can find all the details on the Meetings tab at mbaa.com. We came 